As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Radical Candor podcast. I'm Kim Scott, co-founder of Radical Candor and also Just Work. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor podcast. On our last two episodes, we talked about step two in the get shit done wheel, which is how to clarify an idea. First, getting it really clear in your own mind and then making it easy for others to understand as well. So now that you've got that down, it is tempting to feel like you're done. Not so fast. Kim, do you think it's tempting for people to feel like they want to get it done? They're done at this, at the clarify yeah, stage? I mean, once you've decided, do it. Yeah. <laughs> and decide is that we haven't even gotten to decide. We haven't even gotten to decide yet. Right. Once we, you've clarified, once you're clear in your mind, just start doing stuff. <laughs> the whole point of spending all that time in clarification mode is just to get your idea ready for a debate, which is step three of the get shit done wheel. If you skip the debate phase, you're going to make worse decisions, you'll be unable to persuade everyone that needs to implement, and you'll ultimately slow down or grind to a halt the process. So on this episode, we're going to talk about the steps to follow for a successful debating process. And Kim, in Radical Candor, you write that debates should take place in big debate meetings. In fact, those were each all capitalized. So please do tell us more about these big debate meetings. So I will confess, I'm going to start with a true confession. I actually used to combine often the big decisions and the big debate meeting, but I did make it very clear when we what items were to be debated and what items were to be decided. Decided. Once we grew a little bit bigger, we were able to separate out the meetings. And, and the reason why it's so important to make it really clear to everyone that you're having a debate and not making a decision is that very often conflict will arise on a team when half the people in the room think they're there to make a decision and the other half think they're there to have a debate. 
And about halfway through the meeting, half the room, the debaters are pissed off at the deciders for rushing into something. And the deciders are pissed off at the debaters for talking endlessly. And now all of a sudden you're having not only, uh, you're neither making a debate nor making a decision, but you're just kind of pissed off at everybody. So, so to me, that's not productive. That's not what, that's not going to make us love our work or each other. So if you are more clear about, if you're in fact, radically clear about when you're having a debate and when it's okay to have a debate, then that meeting can lower the tension, can, can eliminate this abstract fight that people are having without even realizing they're having it. And it will also allow you to slow down decisions that don't need to be made right away, where you, you do have the luxury of time to keep thinking about things, because very often... A decision is uncomfortable, and so we just rush into it, and and we rarely make the best decision when that's the case. And the other nice thing about a, a big debate meeting is it can create a culture of debate and good debate. This is, we are not talking about a presidential style debate, which is case number one of a bad debate. It can build a culture where we're collaborating together, we're working with each other to get to the right answer. So when you say a culture where we're getting to the right answer, and and, and we have an example of what a bad debate looks like, Jason, do you have an example? How would you define what good debate looks like? Do you have a specific framework that you think about or a story you want to share about a good debate? Uh, when I was leading the design team at Khan Academy, you had these things called design critiques. And the idea of a design critique is someone would come in, they would present an idea which had been fully thought through, fully realized, and they were able to present it with clarity. And the goal of those meetings was for other people to offer ideas to 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 sort of spin off of what was there, to offer alternatives to what was there with the ultimate goal of the person who came in presenting their work, walking out with at least a handful of ideas of ways they could make what they put their work that they presented better. And these operated a lot like the Rogerian debates that Kim has described because what's, what's interesting is like, even when you have all these rules, it's be, it, you become very attached, you know, to your own ideas. And so the idea of a big debate meeting in terms of lowering the tension and slowing things down is it allows us to, to sit with that attachment for a little while to actually, to, to try to make a point, but then to let go of making that point and to try to see things from somebody else's perspective. And ultimately, one of the reasons why we had these things is because we were building a service that was for anyone, anywhere, if you read the label of Khan Academy, and that meant you, by necessity, you needed multiple perspectives for someone to say, well, that's not going to work as well for a student in a classroom. Let me tell you why that might not work. Here's an idea for how you might make that same thing work for a student in a different situation. Jason, I'm curious, in our last episode, we talked a lot about brainstorming meetings as a way to clarify how were those design meetings that you're talking about set up? What were kind of the rules of the road so that it was clear this was really a debate, a refine meeting to get to the best idea rather than just throwing a whole bunch of ideas out there like a brainstorm? What was the difference? How was it set up differently? Yeah, so I, I think one thing was the, there's the qualitative difference, which is worth not throwing away, which is at the end of a brainstorming meeting, you have more ideas. 
like you may come, you walk away from a brainstorming meeting with maybe doing something or thinking something you had no idea going in that you'd be doing or thinking in a critique and this sort of debate style meeting, the goal explicitly was refinement, meaning, you know, this idea is, is fully realized where, and what we're trying to do is make it as good as possible before we decide to invest our limited engineering resources and actually going and building this feature. So just at that level, like the qualitative difference between the two meetings uh, was really important. And, the fact that we were, there was like a shared source material, like there's a baseline set of assumptions and data and the presentation of a piece of work around those assumptions and data was also really different because often in brainstorming meetings, the whole goal is to be generative, which means we bring in, we can bring in entirely new things. It doesn't have to be the thing that we're talking about. You can say, hey, this makes me think of this thing over here. So uh, I think from a qualitative perspective and from an operational perspective, the biggest difference was that people were allowed to disagree, like to really double down and say, like, I, sh- I feel strongly that we should not do this <laughs> for, th- for this particular reason, uh, which is very different than a brainstorming meeting where the goal would be to build on an idea as opposed to winnow it down. Kim, when Jason's talking about, you know, sort of the permission to dissent, as we talked about, we talked about, you know, having this gavel to dissent in a, in a previous it's not episode. It's permission, it's obligation to dissent. <laughs> it's important. It is important. Words matter. Um, words do matter. All right, so let's actually double-click into the difference between permission and obligation to dissent. How do you create a culture where people feel obligated to dissent in a debate meeting? I think in a in a debate meeting, you want people to walk into the door not trying to win or lose. There can be no notion, actually. The, the only winner or loser is the truth in a debate, is the best, and truth is a dangerous word, is the best answer that we can possibly come up with today. And so I think that if there is a permission to debate or to dissent, then there's also permission not to d- dissent. Whereas, so the, so if everyone walks in and everyone agrees, then a decision gets made kind of de facto. But when there's an obligation to dissent, if everyone walks in and there's no disagreement, someone has to try to take a moment to think about what the issues might be and problems might be that they might not have considered walking in. So a lot of uh, an obligation to dissent comes back to this notion that we've talked about a few times of switching roles uh, and making sure that if one person in the room, and often this person in the room is a person who has either the most power in the room or the most sort of forceful personality in the room or both, then when they say something, if no one disagrees, then everyone feels uncomfortable in a situation where there's an obligation to dissent because they know they're supposed to dissent. They know they're supposed to speak truth to power. So what is it, what does a debate look like where the goal is really to collaborate, to get the best answer rather than to dominate or to coerce or to win? 
This is what, as Jason was saying, is, is what's often called a Rogerian debate. The idea of a Rogerian debate is very opposite of a presidential debate. The whole goal is not to win or lose, but the whole goal is to listen to the other person well enough that you could then argue their, their position or they could argue your position so that it's to, so that our personalities are not attached to one side or another. Uh, another way that this is often described is as a invitational argument. This is uh, work that's done by Sonia Foss and Cindy Griffin. And it's very different from sort of like our legal system where, where there's, you know, we pick a side and we argue, you know, <laughs> for that side and we don't really care about the truth. Our job is just argue for one side. This is quite the opposite. One of the things that I learned when I was at Apple that I found really interesting is that one of the ways that they tried to create this kind of debate or invitational argument, uh, although they didn't call it that, certainly at Apple, but that's what they were doing, was they would encourage people to bring data rather than recommendations to to a debate meeting. Because when we bring a recommendation, somehow we attach our ego to it more. I'm not saying that people don't get their egos attached to data because they do. And data is not always truth. It, you know, you can lie with the data, but it's less likely that you're going to get your ego as attached to data than to a recommendation. There's an interesting clip of Steve Jobs where he says, I don't care about, you know, I don't care about being right. What I care is that we do the right thing. And that's the sort of thinking about being versus doing. It's like a, a growth mindset versus a fixed mm-hmm. mindset. Uh, and, and I think that growth mindset is really essential to getting this right. Jason, I think when we were talking about sort of the bringing data, not recommendations, and you were reflecting on the importance of, of questions in addition to, to data, sort of the what if we do it this way. And it feels like in your Khan Academy story with the design meetings, there were questions. So I'm curious, like in your role sitting in those meetings, what was the relationship between questions, bringing inquiry, growth mindset data, what Kim is just talking about? I, I think questions... Are, they're always valuable, but in these critique meetings, I wanted people to take positions. I, I didn't mm. want them necessarily. I, I wanted them to say, "Here's what I think, and here's why." That's the value of the data, right? Is to say, "Here and data." To Kim, to your point, doesn't it doesn't always have to be quantitative. It can be qualitative, meaning I just spent three hours in a classroom with a bunch of kids, and let me tell you what was going on. That's data too, right? Like, But we want people to say not only what they believe, but why they believe it, because that's the only way that someone else can use it to get closer to the truth. Yeah. If you don't know why the person is holding that point of view, it's very hard for you to update your priors (laughs) after they've shared their perspective with you. I think that's exactly right, is explaining, you know, your reason, your rationale, why you think what you think. Again, we can call it data, we can call it something something else, but but that's really what we're what we're getting after. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, the the folks that are actually in these meetings, Kim, one of the things that you've talked about is that after a staff meeting, the specific topic, there's an actual owner of that topic. And it sounds like, Jason, there was an owner in those meetings that you were talking about, someone who was making a presentation, and there's participants, and then you're sending some sort of notification about this debate meeting, and that 
The only people that are required to participate are identified, but that anyone should be able to attend or observe a big debate meeting. First of all, is that still accurate in your head? And how does participate, to me, I hear participate and I hear obligation to dissent. So if I am a participant, I am obligated to debate or dissent in a meeting. Is that right? If you if you decide to go to the big debate meeting, I would assume that you're going because you you're going to participate at some point. But there's not a there's not an absolute requirement. I think the the requirement I don't like requiring people tell as as I said, I think the chapter of this part of the book is telling people what to do doesn't work. So I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you you have to. So obligation feels Yeah. Well, it's a state of mind, not uh, okay. but but the the idea is that if you own the decision, the ultimate decision. So let's say I I own a decision and here's what the topic is. The topic is should I buy a blue cover for my phone instead of the orange one? And I say I have to make this decision in 3 weeks. This week, I'm going to, here's the big debate meeting. And here are the people who I know I need input from. But anyone else who feels like they should have input, who I forgot, I'm sorry, here's when the meeting is, please, it's an open meeting, please come. The, the reason why I, this may be sort of optimized for my own disorganized personality type. Like part of the reason why I liked this was that very often I would, accidentally exclude people. I wasn't consciously excluding them, but I would accidentally exclude them. And by making the big debate and big decision meetings open, then if someone was, then you couldn't leave anyone off. Everyone knew what what was going on. And so it maybe shifts a little bit of the burden to the from the organizer to the organization more broadly. And we could we could have a debate about whether that's the right design. But that was my design principle. It's interesting because I believe this is from the book where you said the sole product of the debate should be a careful summary of the facts and issues that emerged, a clearer definition of the choices going forward, and a recommendation to keep debating or move on to a decision. Yes. Okay. okay. Absolutely. That's what comes yeah. out. But But by the way, when you go in to the debate meeting, I think it can be really useful to have a physical prop. And so if you're meeting in person, you can have a coat check, but call it an ego check. Like just a a reminder, if you're having a, a, a virtual meeting, just remind, have some sort of physical prop where people are checking their egos. And I think in the middle of the meeting, it's really useful to know when to go get a snack or just take a walk, like when to turn the rock tumbler off and, and let everybody know whether it's a pause or, you know what, this decision is so gut-wrenching, I'm just going gonna, gonna to make the decision now. I don't think that's usually the right thing to do. It's better to pause and come back, but sometimes it is. And then also remember, be very explicit about switching roles. If one person feels passionately about something, and they're shutting, they're, they feel so passionately that they're shutting things down, it's a good idea to ask them to take someone else's point of view in the meeting. So taking different perspectives in the debate. I just want to call out the rock tumbler of debate. We spoke about this in a previous episode. Jason, do you want to give the quick rock tumbler definition of the rock tumbler, just really quick for people that didn't listen to that one? If you've ever seen a rock tumbler, I, I feel 
like you probably know what we're talking about, but you, if you haven't, there's literally a device where you put you put rocks and grit into a a barrel that rotates, tumbles, and polishes the stones. Like that's where the term comes from. I realize that many people who might be listening have never seen one, but as a as an aspiring nerd, I owned a rock tumbler in which I did polished. Did you really? My, I really did. I polished my own. I mean. I never heard of a rock tumbler till I read Radical Candor. I I also had a rock tumbler. I uh, owned a rock. Interesting. Tumbler. This might be a question for our audience. Did you have a rock tumbler when you were growing up? I'm very curious. Yeah. So Kim, looks like you want to say something. I was going to go down a tangent. I also was obsessed by geodes, which I like to bang oh, open. Same. Oh, a hundred. <laughs> Yeah, now Wait. I have a nephew who loves rocks, oh, rock tumbler, has a rock yeah. tumbler, loves so geodes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, gosh. This is uh, there I are feel literally like we have a whole other episode. There, there are tens <laughs> of you. There are tens. Well, who knows? There might write us podcast at radicalkinder.com if you, you want to about- hear more. How do you feel about us talking more about rock tumblers and, and geodes? But I want to call out, Kim, what you were talking about of having this prop. The prop specifically is about checking egos at the door. Also about kind of knowing when to take a snack or or go on a walk. And I'm curious, Jason, when you think about these debate meetings, when we move from either in-person to virtual or hybrid, anything from your perspective that might need to change up a little bit if the debate meeting is happening virtually versus in-person without the coat rack? Other than guidance that applies to all virtual meetings where participation is really important, I don't think there's actually that much you need to be concerned about. But the whole idea here is to get input, right? The reason you're holding this meeting is to get people's input. And so I would see it as the responsibility of the meeting runner. But like when I was running these meetings, mostly in person, although we did have a virtual team, one of the things that I noticed was that it was actually really hard when you're when we were hybrid for people who are remote to get a word in edgewise, because there's a small delay, a latency in the, on on the virtual side of things that in person, you could sort of see someone fidget or lean forward. Like they were going to start to say something. It was instantaneous. You could sort of respond to that, but you wouldn't always see that um, in a, in a remote setting. What it made us do was have better discipline in both cases, which is we would have several breaks where we would stop and we would ask explicitly, does anybody have input? Does anybody want to share something? And so the, in some ways, the like downside of the technology wound up creating discipline for us to create pauses where we explicitly went around the room and, and gathered input and people would say, no, I don't have anything I need to add. And we move on. So it didn't take a ton of time. It was actually quite quick, but it stopped the thing from happening which is someone's been trying to say something for 20 minutes, but they keep slightly getting interrupted and they're sort of like leaning away instead of leaning toward the, you know, the microphone. And so you can't tell that they're trying to say something um, and you wind up missing some really important input. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder about the value of having a moderator. So if you have the presenter who's sort of owning the topic, do you also recommend having a moderator to lead this debate and ensure there is that everyone gets a voice and that there's really moments to have the dissent as well. Kim, Kim, what do you think about a moderator? Huh, it's probably a good idea. I would never do it because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably a criticism of me rather than the idea. Uh, the thing is that the more rules and process you have on a conversation, the more 
unnatural. It's going to, the more tedious it feels to me. And so I would tend to rely on people to lead the meeting and moderate. But I will acknowledge that there are people who are really good at moderating meetings and people who are not so good at moderating meetings. And so learning how to lead a good meeting and how to pay attention to these kinds of cues uh, is, is something that I think, you know, there could probably be more room to teach people how to do this. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Since I was never presenting, or not never, but I was very rarely presenting work directly myself, I was often paying attention to like who's contributing, who's not contributing. And I knew the team well enough to, to know you know, hey, this person happens to know a lot about this topic that we're talking about, but we haven't heard anything from her the entire time. Like, I'm curious about that. And so sometimes it's like asking directly, but Kim, to your point, sometimes on a break or something, I would just go find that person and say, hey, I'm kind of like, I'm just curious. It seems like the kind of thing that you normally contribute a lot to. I feel like we're missing your your voice in this conversation. And, you know, a lot of the time it was entirely innocent, meaning that person's just like, I'm super tired. Yeah, like normally I would, I'd be totally participating. I'm just, I feel like I'm off my game today. But sometimes it was the person was feeling quite frustrated about the way the conversation was going and didn't feel like, and felt like they would be inter, you know, interrupting the harmony. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. At at that point, you'd have to say, that's the point. (laughs) That's why we're having this. If we're too harmonious, like we need to know that now, much better to know that now than after we've invent, you know, invested. Yeah. Dozens or hundreds of hours of people time building something that's not going to work. Yeah, that's where the obligation to dissent comes in. And and like reminding, I think very often people feel like they are being collegial or kind to remain silent. And sometimes Mm -hmm. people are remaining silent. And I'm guilty of doing this myself. When I just really want a meeting to be over, I'm just, I'm like, I'm not going to say a word. I just want this to end. This podcast is now over. (laughs) And so I think the more that you as the moderator can be aware of those kinds of dynamics, 
and to try to do what you can to to make them not happen, the the better. And and I really, I think everybody who's going to lead a, a you know a big decision and who's going to bring in and, and incorporate people who need to contribute to that decision and to lead the debate. One of the things you need to learn how to do is to moderate the conversation and to, and to really listen. And I think if you delegate the moderation of the meeting to someone else, it takes the burden from the decider, takes, takes the burden away from them to listen. And you can't delegate listening. I mean, you just have to do it yourself. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go to the dentist today, so I'm going to delegate that to my husband. Like, I got to go to the dentist for my own damn teeth. You know, if you're going to listen, if you're going to make the decision, you've got to listen. And you're going to, if you're going to have the debate meeting, you've got to listen and you've got to learn how to listen. Jason, in those meetings, were you the decider? No, usually not. I, I would say, like, I think moderation is too strong of a word for what I would describe myself as doing, which is more like noticing like participation, right? Who was participating, who wasn't participating. And I feel like part of the challenge of moderating your own, you know, debate is that you might be quite interested in the conversation, meaning maybe Kim brings up a point about the work product that I'm showing. And I'm like, super interested. I hadn't thought about that. And we wind up spending a bunch of time talking about this idea. And I'm like, and I'm not, I'm engrossed in that conversation. I'm not necessarily fully looking around the room and noticing like other people are sort of like tuned out. This isn't necessarily the only thing that we should be discussing. I felt like my job was essentially to gently call attention to, to that. And really I, I didn't moderate because I left it up to the person who is presenting the work to actually make the change. But I would say something like, Hey, we haven't heard, you know, a new idea in a while. Um, and then that would be enough to sort of signal that person to just to to have someone keeping tabs on sort of emotional state hunger, like, and, and also just equity in terms of voices. I think what's interesting, Jason, also about what you said, following up with the woman who hadn't spoken that when we're virtual, we have to be more intentional about that. Like it's a lot easier to do that when someone is just, you know, walking and we've got like a few minutes outside, but we need to be a bit more intentional uh, virtually. So Kim, just like, you know, I love a good brainstorm and I talked about how not everyone loves a good brainstorm. I don't really love a debate as much as I love a good brainstorm. And I know that there's probably people that almost dread debate meetings. Tell us more about like different people's reactions to the idea of big debate meetings. I also really, I I don't like debate uh, myself. In fact, I think we just kind of dodged a debate there. Because I was sort of dodge a debate. I think we were saying different things, but we didn't really debate it. Uh, So I think I was saying, "Please don't give me a moderator." And Jason was like, "I'm the moderator," and we didn't really. (laughs) (laughs) No, Jason said it was not. I think Jason didn't say he was a moderator, but I think Jason said you want to have someone there that's sort of looking out for the whole group. But a moderator is like. You know they're on a presidential debate and they're making sure that like every. Well, we've already it's established like a, these are not presidential. This right. is right, so different. it's like a small M moderator. I would say, like moderator, in my mind, the reason why it's so important for the person standing and presenting the work to be the moderator is like it is to transmit the idea that it was important to you, Kim, which is that it's their responsibility to hear, to get yeah. the information from people. And so yeah. in my mind, the difference between what I was doing, what a moderator does is flow control. Like the flow control of the conversation still belonged to the person who's presenting the work. Yeah. And I was like suggesting from the side, like, 
and sometimes it wasn't to the person, right? Like I said, sometimes it was like in a break or something along those lines where I was asking someone their perspective. And so the point was that the person's still in control of the conversation. I wasn't saying, Hey, stop talking to Kim and talk to Randy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was saying, Hey, I'm curious if anyone else has a perspective. And that was enough to sort of allow the person to look up and notice what else might be going on. Yeah. So in some ways, the in those conversations, I'm guessing you are one of the more senior people in the room. That's a good role. hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Yes. So that's a good role for the senior person to play, not to grab the decision, but to help make sure that everybody's talking. Correct. Like one of the things I would do when I was the more senior person in the room is I would volunteer to take the notes. Yep. Uh, That's another thing. And it was just a way really for me to shut myself up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's also really important. Yeah. 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 And then the most junior person uh, wasn't taking the notes uh, in, in the room. And, and they were liberated to participate more. They felt more of an obligation to dissent, but they also had more ability to dissent because they weren't taking the notes. Kim, you also talked about how we avoided a debate and how you actually don't love a debate. So just yes. tips on for people that don't love a debate to see the value of it still. I think the thing that helps me love debate more is when I think about it in terms of the invitational argument or the Rogerian argument, where my goal, what I don't like is to walk into a room and to have an agenda. I also like don't like this in my calendar. When my calendar is clogged up every day and I know what I'm going to do with every I don't like having an agenda. I like being free. We talked last time about having these open conversations. I like being open and free. I find I'm in a more creative space. And so if I think about this debate as a collaboration uh, as opposed to a contest, then I like debate a lot more. When I think about it as a contest or like as a legal thing or a presidential kind of debate, then I don't want to do it. Well, weren't you a debate star in high school? Are you kidding? No. I thought... No, you have debate history. I no, I, am, no, I have told no, a story I, in my yeah. You were a absolutely. debater. You have told stories not. of you being a great debater. No, Randy is nodding. Randy, no, tell I, us. I tell us what do you've the heard. United Nations once, and I learned that's what you're thinking of. So I did do okay, the United yeah. Nations. Do you want me to tell the story? I've already told Please, it to you yes. many times on this podcast. I don't know. Well, when I was in high school, I I did model United Nations and. For most of, you know, in in freshman and sophomore and junior year, I was very well prepared. And I went in and I had, I knew all about the country that I was supposed to be representing and blah, 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 blah. And I never, you know, did especially well as a delegate. And then my senior year, I was applying to college and I was breaking up with my first romantic and, and I had no time or capacity to prepare for, to represent the Czech Republic and or Czechoslovakia as it was then. And so I, I just went there and I just, because I was not able to think about all these facts, I was just watching the people. And I realized nobody really knew anything about their country. (laughs) And they were just, they were just kind of slamming one another and being rude to one another. And I was like, well, I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and of course, I was one of very few women. It was mostly boys who were in the Model United Nations in Memphis, Tennessee. 
And I just spent all my pent-up frustration about college application and the and the end of my first romance. I just I flung it all at these kids. And then I kind of by the end of the, I was I was kind of a bully, frankly. And by the end of the day, I felt gross about my behavior. And I remember going home and taking a bath and my mother bursts into the bathroom and she says, Kim, I got a phone call. Why aren't you there? You've won the best delegate award. (laughs) It was an important lesson for me. One, to realize the extent to which very often, you know, postulatory boldness wins out over the facts and it should not. And the, the moral of the story is not to act like a jerk in a debate, but to learn learn how to have these more productive conversations that are not that kind of that are not that kind of experience because it was gross. Like, I, I, the, why should the person who is meanest and most bullying win? The person, the, the, everybody loses when that person wins. Uh, we we want to make sure that we're creating. A situation where everyone speaks and everyone is listening. More importantly, everyone is listening to one another. Well, I'm yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, and especially this idea of your actual distaste for debate when it is this contest versus a collaboration. And you know, I wanted to bring into the conversation what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is this ego check and when power enters the room. And I think the assumption that you're making with a, a healthy debate meeting, a culture of debate, is that everyone's has a has a sort of an equity, has a fair voice at the table. Um, yeah. But what we found is that doesn't always happen. And just, you know, as a team, we were working on a comedic script for a training video, and there was a line that our colleague Brandy and I thought was inappropriate because the script was calling for a black woman to make light of a typo they had made by delivering a sexually suggestive joke to her male boss. It was specifically directing the character to say flirtatiously, getting everyone's butt in is working for me on a lot of levels because the typo had said B-U-T-T rather than by. And we both, Brandy and I, had a real concern about this. And when we brought it forward both in sort of written feedback and then in the debate meeting, what we were sharing was shut down and it did not become a debate. And I think there were probably some power dynamics happening there. And so Kim, Jason just wanted to bring that to you so that you could reflect on that and any lessons on how folks could handle something like that differently. And before Jason and I jump in, can we invite Brandy to join the conversation? Uh, Brandy, you all don't get to hear from Brandy very often, but we should hear from her point of view as well first. Sure. I I think from my perspective, the power dynamics, I think the person I was disagreeing with was a vice president and I was a manager at the time. Uh, I think I was only part-time even. And I was bringing up that I thought that this joke was not only inappropriate for the workplace, but that, that it was sexual harassment. And this person shut that down very quickly and said, you know, it's not sexual harassment and I was being too sensitive. And I'm the expert. We know what's funny. Basically saying that the line would stay in. And after, uh, after the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, we had many, many more conversations about it where I actually went and pulled legal documents to back up my point because I felt like maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. 
But um, I did find that if you do make sexual jokes at work in front of other people who find that offensive, that could potentially be considered sexual harassment. If that person is offended, it's an ongoing situation. They report it to HR. You, the joke maker, could be uh, in trouble legally. So I think, like, not only were, did you get shut down in the meeting, there was maybe a little bit of gaslighting going on, like as though, you know, this person was uh, acted as though they knew what constituted sexual harassment and what didn't. And that was not their area of expertise. <laughs> right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, yes. and it was interesting because Brandy, I mean, I, as we went through it and it, it did, as you said, we had a lot of conversations and I, in trying to be a upstander and saying like, I will die on this hill, you know, for you, but then had a follow-up conversation with you, Kim, where you didn't first understand what I was doing in that no. context. No. And I, you know, I will say I, once I understood, but it took you all, both you, Amy and Brandy, a lot longer than it should have to get through. I was not a good listener in this case. And it, and once I understood the situation, I realized that I had not done the thing that I usually consider myself pretty good at doing, which is making sure everyone has a voice, making sure everyone is, is on a level playing field. I hadn't done that at all in this meeting for some reason. And I still don't understand. I, I don't have a good... There's, I mean, there's... All I can do is say I'm sorry. I don't there's there wouldn't be a good reason, but it would be useful for me if I could understand why I failed to do that so utterly in this meeting. But I don't I don't probably even just know. pure exhaustion. It was pre-COVID. We were still doing in-person events. This project we were doing on top of all of our regular work. It was very time consuming. And we had a lot yeah. of feedback sessions and debates. And I think the frustration came that Amy and I felt that we were, we had given, already given this feedback multiple times and discussed it multiple times. And we were just being ignored by the decider. Not right. you, Kim, and I think, the person on the other team. Yeah. yeah and I, I'll build on that by saying it wasn't clear to me either. Like at first it wasn't clear to me either. Like why, why this particular thing was, was so sensitive and I was not, I'm not a legal expert, so I wasn't sure who was right. Like, I don't know. Is this person right? Is is Brandy right? Like, I don't know. That combined with the fact that, you know, we were deferring to some extent to, to expertise. Like in my, in my mind, it's like, well, this person, <laughs> this person should know caused us to shut down debate. Like it was easier to say like, we're working with this person because they're the expert. So therefore that expert opinion wins in this particular case, but that was completely unnecessary because we didn't even have to decide in that moment, you know, which of these things to do. We just need to make sure that the feedback was really heard. And a, like a simple solution would have been to say, Hey, can you, the, the part, the decider, can you go dig into what Brandy is saying? Like she's raising a, a legitimate concern, like validate whether or not that concern like the legal part of the concern. And then there's the, cause then there was the qualitative part of the feedback also, which well, I don't think was addressed. So there's like the legal part of the feedback, which is like, does this constitute harassment? And there's the qualitative part of the feedback, which is like, is it appropriate to have this character say it to this other character? Yeah. It was like it was the other part of the feedback, even in the context of the story, forget the legal framework of harassment. Yeah. Like, is it appropriate? Neither of those things were heard, but it was, it was in Kim and my power 
to help both of those things be heard. And, and I feel like because neither of us were sure, I feel like that contributed, Kim, to your inability to hear. Because I remember you and I talked about it afterwards, and I was like, I don't know. I don't think, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's yeah. harassment. So I didn't make your job any easier. Yeah. And the fact that we didn't know, we like we should know before we make a decision. I think so. Something is coming up for me here, which is I think part of part of the issue for me in that meeting is that we had said we're going to finalize. And I think anytime Mm. you're having a Mm. meeting to finalize something, Mm. (laughs) you're in a danger zone where debate because because you're in a hurry and debate is not it's it feel it always feels like usually debate speeds things up in the long run but if you're going to finalize something then debate feels like it's getting in the way of the objective of the meeting that makes perfect sense especially kim when i know that one of your things is efficiency and once you've gotten into efficiency mode then that almost overrides sort of yeah being able to hear what's happening. And I think the other reason why that's so important is because I know one of the things, especially when you're giving so much feedback, sort of became a joke of like, I'm going to die on this hill. But like, that was sort of the measure. Like, is this a hill to die on? Is this a hill to die yeah. on? It's like, no, but now this is like, you know, there yes. were multiple hills. And I, I think you're you're hitting the, the nail on the head with the finalizing because it, it's, it's such a constraint that it didn't give us enough space for all of the different hills that we actually needed to cover. So then the real legitimate hill didn't get addressed. It was sort of put in the same level of importance as things that were not nearly as important. Anytime you're in a meeting where the goal is to finalize something, you should ask a court. I'm next, or I'll put it, I don't know what you should do. I'll tell you what I'm going to do next time. I'm going to say, is this a rubber stamp meeting? If so, you know, I'm not going to show, like, (laughs) I don't need to be at a rubber stamp meeting. Yeah. And I think in this particular instance, the joke would have been funny in an episode of The Office, but considering that we were making a training video that without the context of the relationship between these two people, the only way it could be ignored or it could be flagged as racially and sexually inappropriate. Yes. And would have been. I mean, and that's not funny. Like, I think the other, one of the you know, I am the decider about what's funny. Like, that's also dangerous. Nobody, like, that was problematic. Another problematic sort of construct of that meeting. I, again, like, I feel like that's a place, Kim, where you and I failed to use the power that we had to challenge that that precept. Yes. <laughs> oh, t- I mean, it was a total fa- failure on my part. I share in that responsibility. I I think it's like it's important to recognize that the goal of the meeting affects people's behavior, right? Yeah. So one of the things we're saying is like if you say the goal of the meeting is to decide the thing, and then everybody's debating, it feels like it feels inefficient. You said this at the top of the episode. Yeah, it feels really inefficient if everybody starts talking like disagreeing about stuff. But a really important thing that you say about exiting a debate meeting is that if you're going to leave a debate meeting, you need to know whether or not all of the things have been finalized or whether more debate is necessary. And I feel like what Brandy and Amy were doing was saying more debate is necessary (laughs) about this particular thing. And instead of us hearing that we were like, finalize me. (laughs) Yeah. And so like that, that idea of knowing where you are in this process, like in the, the wheel uh, it is really important. This is a, there's a real cost to getting that wrong, to not knowing where you are, and to signaling the wrong position, the wrong yeah. meeting, you know, title. Because it's not just 
in this moment, it went wrong. It took us a long time to unwind what happened here and to actually fix it. Yeah. Um, and then it took time for us to restore the, you know, the, I think Amy and Brandy rightfully lost some faith in your and my ability to, to have their voices heard and it took time for us to restore that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, and I think it's a good example of what very often what feels inefficient is actually way more efficient. And it would have been way faster for us to say, <laughs> okay, this was a finalized meeting. Now it's a debate meeting. Let's have this debate. Like that would have been mm-hmm. far, far, far more <laughs> faster to get to resolution than to just say, ah, you know, we got to move. And the irony yeah. that, you know, another irony of this is that part of the reason I was in such a hurry, I think, is that I was editing just work, which was about that topic. <laughs> it's like the the ironies pile up here as we continue to talk. Well, and I just want to acknowledge, I think one of the reasons why I do have so much trust and care and gratitude is because we do have these conversations. And so, you know, if I'm listening to this conversation, what I would take away from it is, wow, mistakes are going to happen and and there is going to be friction. And sometimes the efficient, you know, like Kim, like you're saying, you got to almost slow down to speed up. But I think the biggest takeaway is just, it's actually in how you handle the mistakes and the ability to have these follow-up conversations. That's actually how you get closer. So, you know, I just encourage people to have that as a takeaway because that's certainly how I, how I feel about it, just in terms of it's how you really respond to, to really being heard. And I felt, I felt heard. I don't know, Brandy, do you have any other takeaways you want to share? Yeah, I was going to say the same. I think that Kim and Jason are the first people I've worked for that I actually felt comfortable bringing something like that up. I think on Jason and my first one-on-one meeting, I brought it up and I was so nervous and Jason was so great. I would have never brought that up to a boss in the past because I felt I wouldn't have been heard or there would have been some sort of, um, retaliation and that this was just such a different scenario and Kim and Jason are such great bosses. I'm not just saying that because we are on the podcast, but we did screw up and we will, right, screw but the up message in, yeah, yeah, I think that's that an you important, created like, a space of psychological safety that we felt comfortable talking about it with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. There, there's something valuable there, which is like, this, this is something I wind up saying quite a lot in my, uh, in my workshops is, is that saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing is not the thing that destroys relationships. It's what you do when someone tells you you have said yeah. or done the wrong thing yeah. that has the potential for infinite relationship damage. <laughs> it is really true. And yet we, as soon as we hear that we've messed up, we get defensive. It's uh, it, for some reason, our instincts on this tend to lead us astray. Indeed. Well, I think we're here. We are. We're out creating our instincts. We're we're stronger than ever. Shall we wrap this one up? Let's do it. Now it's time for our radical candor checklist. Tips you can use to start putting radical candor into practice. Tip number one: check your ego at the door. And if you're the most senior person in the room, maybe help other people check their egos at the door as well. <laughs> Make sure that. Each person's self-interest doesn't get in the way of having a collaborative truth, a collaborative quest for the best answer. Nothing is a bigger time sucker or blocker than 
to getting it right than one's ego. So in other words, come into the meeting being prepared to take other people's role, being prepared to offer facts, not recommendations, being prepared to listen so that you can learn something rather than with a mentality, I'm going to win this argument or you know, this is me versus you or my idea versus you or your idea or my data versus your data. Uh, make sure you're coming in with, with that I, notion of a Rogerian argument or an uh, invitation to argue. Step number two, this can get intense. So make sure that you're leaving space for emotion and exhaustion. Uh, like in our example, there are lots of factors that contributed to us mismanaging what could have been a relatively straightforward debate. And so if we don't pay attention to those things, we're often going to lose the input of people who have who have a very strong perspective, but are maybe tired of trying, are tired of trying to share it. And the really sad part is like, once the emotions get the best of the conversation, it can be really hard to reestablish the good natured ego checking shared quest for the truth that Kim was describing. And finally, tip three, one way to get to that best answer is to ask participants to switch roles halfway through each debate. This makes sure that people are listening to each other and helps them really stay focused on getting to the best answer and getting out of our egos and hierarchy. If you are someone who is more senior, like Jason described, you can keep an eye on whether folks are contributing and if they're not, encourage equitable distribution of airtime in these conversations. For more tips, you can go to RadicalCandor.com slash resources, download our learning guides to practice Radical Candor. For the show notes for this episode, go to RadicalCandor.com slash podcast. Go ahead, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, Kim talked about it, her latest book. Kim, what's the title? Just Work, How to Root Out Bias, Prejudice, and Bullying to Create a Kick-Ass Culture of Inclusivity. That is available everywhere books are sold, as well as the Radical Candor store for Radical Candor swag. That's on RadicalCandor.com and click the shop link. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.